Welcome to the Writing Block Podcast, where we talk all things writing and indie publishing. Today, we will be talking with two of our members who are immersed in the genres of horror and urban fantasy. So we will be talking about those genres today. And I'm Carrie Dubiel, and we are happy to be joined by G.A. Finocaro and Susan Hamilton today. How are you guys all doing? Doing Very great. Well, thank you. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So um, why don't we uh, talk a little bit about each of your work so that our listeners can know a little bit more about who you are. Sure, sure. So uh, I have uh, two published works out right now. Uh, the Nightmares was my first published book and uh, the uh, or Grace Falls just recently came out about a week and a half ago. So uh, those are the two works that I've been working on uh, probably for you know, the last like 15 years. Uh, so finally getting them out the door. Um, but they tend to be, uh, you know, somewhere in the realm of uh, Somebody compared me to more like an R.L. Stein, slightly more adult, uh, which I kind of thought was amusing. Um, and uh, yeah, that's about it. Cool. Susan? Great. Thank you. I um, My most recent work is Shadow King, which is an urban dark fantasy. The next one I'm working on is called The Devil Inside, which is, I think, kind of a more of a hybrid of urban fantasy with a, a healthy dose of humor and paranormal romance in it. That one is in theory in production, but the coronavirus has, of course, put the kibosh on a lot of that. So I'm not 100% sure when it's coming out, but in theory, it will be in the relative near future, maybe, hopefully. I I hear you on that. <laughs> Everything is slowed down right now. I'm just glad we're not doing a podcast on pandemic fiction right now. <laughs> I have a friend who's actually on the board of the horror writers association and a lot of times she talks about how horror can be an escape for people because it's so so out there and both of you what's cool about your books i i think is that it's not just straight up slasher we we've talked about how a lot of times horror can be written just for the shock value of it like just the blood and guts and gore and i don't really sense that with either one of you. So why don't we talk a little bit about where each of you falls into this genre and what has drawn you to it? Sure, sure. Um, so, wow, uh, that's a, it's a pretty deep question because I think it goes into a lot of different places. Um, yeah, for, for first sure. off, you know, I, I wasn't drawn to, to horror when I was younger. Uh, I think my introduction into horror actually was, uh, uh, 1987's Monster Squad, if anybody remembers that, uh, Wolfman's Got Nards, you know, <laughs> um, it was like a, a big part of my uh, childhood, actually, that movie. And then I think, you know, growing up, uh, like I hated horror growing up. I really did. I despised it. And then at some point in time, uh, I think it was right in the late 90s, maybe, uh, you know, when Buffy the Vampire Slayer came out, I was a big fan of that. But also, I think, you know, I, I had uh, gone through a, a, a tough personal loss in my early 20s. And after that, I found myself, for whatever reason, really drawn to uh, this world of, you know, the urban fantasies and also the, the, the horrors of the world. And, you know, everything from, uh, you know, somebody like Clive Barker, who writes some seriously dark stuff. But again, it's not slasher. It's just this... It's almost like um, like horror fantasy in a way. It, it it blends the the different elements together in a very 
unique way, but all the way through to somebody like David Wong, who wrote John Dies at the End, which is, you know, uh, a hilarious horror, uh, you know, and, and if you ever read it, it's the only book that I think that I've ever read that made me laugh one sentence and then tingle, uh, send tingles up my back the next. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's amazing at what he does. And then even people like Neil Gaiman and, and Joe Hill, who uh, Joe Hill is still to this day, probably, I prefer him to his father, uh, Stephen King. I, I think that Joe is is amazing in the way he he writes and, and you know, he can bring things together in so many different ways, like Horns, um, uh, that book right there. Uh, you know, I, I feel bad because the, the movie did it no justice. The, the book itself was amazing. And it's still to this day one of those books that when I read a couple scenes, it, it scared the crap out of me, to put it any other way. And it's not a scary book, but there's just the way he wrote it, the prose, the, the different things that he said just drew me in and made me terrified. So I, I think with those things, that those things, I, I think it's the beauty of horror. Uh, you know, it's this innocence versus evil. It's you know the darkness and and the the light. And I and you know I actually refer back to of all things the uh, early '80s movie uh, Legend with darkness, and you have Jack yeah. who's played by Tom Cruise. That you yeah, know, there's there's lines in that movie they talk about, you know, what is dark without light and things like that. And I think it's a, you know, horror brings out a lot of very human elements and none of those things can be more true than if you look at, you know, vampires and you look at werewolves and you look at some of the classics and and the allegories they tell to things like addiction and things like, you know, insanity and lust and, and things like that. There's so many human elements that are brought forth by those things that, uh, by these creatures of the night that, I don't know. I've always been drawn to it now uh, in adulthood. And, and I fast, I'm just fascinated with writing it and writing my own versions of it. So true. Yeah. Susan, you have otherworldly characters in your books as well, right? Yeah. Um, I'm more on the probably like the, the, the fae and mythological creature side of it. I actually I have a very complicated love hate relationship with horror myself. I could not handle it as a child. My father used to watch, you know, all the old movies. And when I was very little, I saw like 10 minutes of the original Nosferatu and that scarred me for my entire childhood. I didn't, I refused anything to do with vampires or anything like that until I was forced to read Dracula in college. But it was the same idea when I, I finally was like, you know what? You can probably handle an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You need to be a big girl about this. (laughs) And I have slowly come to appreciate uh, that type of horror, but I'm not a. I've never really been a big consumer of uh, King or Kuntz or any of those. In fact, I, I mm-hmm. once again tried to prove I was adult once uh, when I was in college, and I my mother was a big fan of Dean Kuntz, and I picked up one of her books on the table, and again it was like I'm 19 years old, I'm a grown up, I can handle this. <laughs> I got four chapters in, the phone rang on the other side of the room. I could not see around our Christmas tree to where the phone was in the dark dining room. And I refused to go answer it because I didn't know what was behind the tree. (laughs) I kind of tells you everything you need to know about me and horror. But I do agree with what Gina was saying about the whole, like the, the comparison of dark and light is you can't have light without dark. And I think the interplay of those between horror, dark fantasy, urban fantasy, they, they blend in through that. And I think that's such an important theme. That's one thing that I really gravitate to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I think that's the same with different creatures that you see in both genres. You know, the the whole 
vampire trying to be human or the werewolf struggling with his desire to eat people or whatever like there's a a lot of mirroring of what people actually go through in their real lives it's just kind of taken to the extreme absolutely for me i feel similar to you susan is that when i was a kid v like my parents used to watch v and it was so scary yeah i forgot about that yeah it was like the aliens peeling off their skin and stuff like yes it was so scary so i became scared of like i was scared of labyrinth i was scared of uh legend i was scared of uh, little shop of horrors like everything scared me i was such a wimp and then later on in life very similar i was like okay let's not be a baby let's just get get it together and and start reading this stuff and certain things i just love like i love jim butcher i love Mm -hmm. king books that i've been able to bring myself to read and then there's been like the occasional book that I've started reading that I didn't realize was horror. <laughs> and I'm like, oh shit. I'm like, I better, <laughs> like, I'm going to have to read this now because I have to know what happens. And then I'm like, all right, I can do this. I can handle it. And then I tell my friend Becky, who's in just a horror fanatic, I'm like, guess what, Becky? I read something horror. <laughs> like, I'm very proud of you because she knows that. <laughs> So, but I've always been drawn kind of to these, these creatures as metaphors for what humans can and can't be and for what humans are struggling with. And I've always thought that the world building is so interesting. So that's something, a topic that we can leap into. Well, Susan, I'll start with you. So when you're writing, when you're writing your world, tell us a little bit about that process of building that before you start actually drafting. How, how does that all come to you? Generally, my world building, when I start writing, I usually start with a character and I, I build a world and a story around that if the character has, has attracted my attention that much. For Shadow King, it was really kind of interesting because the the world kind of built itself because it is actually set in modern day Boston. But I had to figure out a way to integrate the the world of the Fae as I saw it and how that would fit in. Because my, my premise is that the realm of fairy has been completely destroyed. There's no going back. And now they're they've been stuck living with us for quite a while. And how do I integrate the qualities of that world in with our world and hopefully make it as seamless as I can. I work in Boston, so a lot of my settings are places where I would walk at lunch and see things and they would be very, it was very visual for me so I could build that into my world. But then combining my own ideas for what fairy is combined with the, some of the things that come out of folklore and how do you, you, how do you put those familiar things in, in a way that makes sense? Yeah. And how do you avoid stereotypes, things that other writers have done? Kind of like the whole World of Warcraft is inspired by Dungeons and Dragons kind of thing. How do you pay homage to those while also being original? Right. That is that that is a very interesting question because you there are so many of those things are kind of just ingrained once you've read enough yeah, so things just kind of become part of the way you think sometimes, and it's it can be difficult to to decouple them. Mm-hmm. I tried very hard to make the characters themselves 
as as visceral as I could from a, a character building standpoint, while again still trying to retain some of that uniqueness that comes with being Fey. I didn't write it intentionally this way, but a lot of people have pointed out that there are some hints within uh, Shadow King that really get at sort of the the immigrant quality and prejudice. Hmm. Even though the Fae have been integrated with us for a while, there are still those who are like, you're not from around here, get out. Yeah. And trying to come up with the idea of, you know, how would humans look at these people? If you went into a supermarket and a pixie was your cashier, some people wouldn't care, but there are other people the way we do with other humans would be like, I don't want to go through that register because they're not like me. I've seen that theme in a lot of work you know that theme of the other and that's interesting that it manifested like that in your book are your two books connected world-wise or did you build two completely different uh they are two absolutely different worlds two completely different stories the one that is in production now is called the devil inside i have heaven and hell set up as a corporation and (laughs) my, my main character is an ambitious devil who works in the sales and acquisitions department of hell who starts an illicit affair with a disgruntled angel who hates his boss and is stuck in a dead-end job (laughs) (laughs) well that sounds about right chaos ensues (laughs) (laughs) love it did that feel a little bit more cheeky to you when you were working on that yes yeah i definitely think i have a lot more wisecracks and humor in that one and and you know, sarcastic conversation. Mm, mm-hmm. That's interesting. That's that's quite a switch. Yes. But do you think you'll go back to your Fey world that you created, or is that kind of a standalone story? It could stand alone. It has got an open enough ending that um, I do have a bunch of ideas for a second book. But one thing I have learned about my own process is that second books are, for me are very hard because I put an unreasonable amount of pressure on myself. It's like, you know, I know what this first one was, and this one's got to be so much better. And then when I I doubt that it is, I get very stuck. And I have learned that if I try to push through that, I just get more and more stuck. Um, so right now, the second book in the Shadow King group is a big pile of notes and ideas and potential storylines. And I realized I needed to take a break or I was never going to get anywhere with it. And I've actually probably the past couple of weeks been starting to think about it again and be like, oh, well, that would work. And oh, yeah, I could do that with that character. So I think my brain is ready to get back to it. That's interesting. Yeah, it's funny how those little bunnies can hop around our heads and <laughs> take us away from what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, that's always like the hardest thing, I think, is when you get inspired on something, you want to keep going. And you could be four or five uh, different projects deep. And you're you're trying to find your way constantly back to whatever, whatever you're being inspired by at that time. Tell us a little bit about the world of Grace Falls. Sure, sure. So what I could say that uh, to contrast myself uh, with Susan is is actually that everything that I have done has been in, in in either a happy accident or has been purposely set up to be connected. There are times, and I, and I think that it's funny how this works. Sometimes you can write something and you just read it back to yourself and you're like, oh, wow, that, that connects perfectly over here. And I didn't even have to do any like real work to actually make that happen. So I think a, a great deal of my, of my work has been 
one of those two things, happy accident or, or purposely set up that way. But there are, um, if I go back to the nightmares itself, like there, that was my flagship world. If, if you, if you will, it's, it's the world that everything is going to interact with the, the main timeline, if you will. Um, and I think the characters in there, you know, one of the things that I got lucky, uh, with is that I based them off of myself and my best friends in college. So the personalities were already in my head and it was just a matter of making caricatured versions of them and in a way poking fun at, at all of us, uh, you know, in the way we were back then. So uh, I had a lot of fun with that and and in building that world. And again, you know, we are talking about a lot of time passing. So I had a lot of, uh, you know, opportunity to think about it, but that world and the way it branches out into everything else, it was, I was inspired by quite a, a few different things and Really, what I wanted to tell, uh, and I and I think I've even mentioned this a couple of times in other uh, interviews that I've had, was that I've always been fascinated with series of events leading to something greater. And and in specifically, I've always pinpointed to World War One and how there were so many things that led up to like so many different dominoes had to fall over for it to actually, you know, uh, conflate into this giant world war. And I kind of thought to myself that I kind of want to tell a story where all these little things can stand alone on their own, but when they come together, they tell a larger story. Think something over here affected this over here, and that basically made a whole different series of events follow through. And that's sort of what uh, I started off with with the nightmares was setting up that groundwork that was going to be that. And then from there, uh, Grace Falls, actually, what's funny about that is that I didn't intend to write Grace Falls. It, it kind of just came up as a as an exercise that, that one day I said, I'm going to write a short story. And um, I was really inspired by this. Uh, uh, I forget even what it was at the time, but it was uh, this story that I had seen. And I watch a lot of British television. So there was a, uh, a show I was watching and it just like set off some type of inspiration where I really wanted to tell the story about three best friends that are all very different from one another for whatever reason. And they basically have a tragedy that beset them in the middle of this story. And that led to Mum, uh, the very first story in, in Grace Falls of, of one of six. And this story, uh, you know, I thought to myself, well, if I wanted to do this, like, and I started writing some of the other stories and I was like, you know, it'd be really cool if these stories not just set up a, a greater world for me, like a way to kind of quickly have one-offs to little origin stories of their own and, and also to inspire this greater world, but if I could then connect them to each other. And so it started this narrative thread that, that started happening with, uh, with Grace Falls. And I don't want to give too much away, but there's definitely an overarching character that goes through each one of the stories, whether or not they're, they're physically there, or whether they are in the background somewhere lurking, uh, you know, that this character arc goes through the entirety of all six stories. And I, and I, I tried to mess with the tone of each one to kind of come up with something different. For example, the first story, Mum, is, is very dark. It, it does have to do with uh, these three friends and this serial killer that comes into, into their town. And I, and I wanted to kind of come up with a, uh, speaking to the horror elements, I wanted to come up with something that was, all at once slasher, but more in the way of a more of a scarier, uh, more my twist on it, because I am not a big fan of, of slasher movies. 
But, uh, you know, I wanted to come up with something that was my own, but also had a twist the supernatural in it, but almost to to, uh, you know, do it in such a way that kind of led a lot to the mind. I've always been fascinated by the old Aliens movies and and how the less you saw of something, the the more scared you were of it. Uh, So I kind of wanted to play with that a little bit as well. But leading out of that story, the second story follows a little, uh, I think uh, she's six, seven years old, little girl named Amanda, who, uh, you know, had a really horrible tragedy happen in her life. And yet she's she's never slowed down. She's just this little imaginative fireball that wants to go out and explore. And she wants to play with all the boys, but the boys won't let her. And she's got this great imagination. And she goes out exploring into the backwoods in the middle of the night where this uh, flashing blue light uh, caught her attention. And, uh, you know, and I just thought to myself, like, this is going to be a very different departure from from what I'm doing in the previous story. So I, I purposely tried to make each story very different than the previous. And then in mixing with with Grace Falls, it's like the overall mythology, I became really uh, fascinated by the um, H.P. Lovecraft and, and a lot of his ability to write some really creepy stuff without really showing anything and without, you know, using any any real um, descript like everything he wrote was very descriptive, but not actually about what you were seeing, just about the way it affected the narrator in the story. So I, I took a lot of those elements too, as well, uh, you know, with, with this project and, and, and also twisted a lot of his, um, like he gives a lot of mythology. It takes a lot of work to actually kind of piece it together. I wanted to borrow just a little hint of it, this idea of cosmic horror. And I created my own world based upon a lot of that. So uh, you know, there's a lot of world building I built from there, a lot of um, different religion and and mythology elements that I am like working together. And then also with my newest project right now, uh, which is uh, I'm calling it Cataclysm. And it is a four part book series that I'm actually very nearly done. I'm, I'm like working on my way through the third part right now. Oh, wow. um, and it is basically a very heavy mythological uh, jaunt through. Imagine the worst tragedy that could uh, happen to somebody and them going through the process of dealing with the loss and and then somehow finding a way to resurrect themselves out of it, all while finding out that they were part of this huge, you know, mythological conspiracy and uh, that they are really the only ones that can basically prevent something really terrible from happening. And so I have these, I, I think anybody who's looked at my um, Facebook page has seen the, the one image that says the 13 are coming. And, uh, and that's what this story is. The 13 are 13 mythological gods that are actually fallen angels that basically have, uh, you know, one intent purpose in mind, led by a, a charismatic and very insane uh, uh, character named Malice. And Malice mm-hmm. is basically hell-bent on recreating the world in his image uh, for various reasons. And so basically this character, his name's Tony, uh, basically is put into this world of these mythological gods and, and you know, these this cosmic horror and the things that are happening, you know, around him trying to fight through this to, to basically, you know, uh, keep his sanity, but also save the, the woman he loves. And so there's a, there's a lot of, um, horror elements, fantasy elements there as well. They, 
that all of this and and here's here's the kicker and here's the world building aspect of it is that everything that happens in cataclysm happens not only in philadelphia where uh, the nightmares takes place and and which is very similar to what susan uh, talked about with uh boston but because i lived in philly so i wanted to write about stuff that i knew but Grace Falls is also the uh, actual setting of the entirety of Cataclysm for the most part. And it basically builds up the more mythology about this town, why it is what it is, why things happen there that happen there. And the overall uh, you know, mythology all is surrounding this town. And so Grace Falls is my way of starting that mythology in a, in a series of shorts that lead to something greater. I love that idea. And I love that everything is connected. I'm thinking about how all of the stories in Grace Falls are connected. They each kind of give you a different sense of satisfaction when you finish them. And then Mm -hmm. when you finish the collection as a whole, you have a sense of satisfaction. But at the same time, it leaves you wanting more. That I think is what a book that is kind of setting up or is in a world with another book, that's what it should do. Mm-hmm. And yet they still stand alone, which is just like really cool. I just finished a book. It's it's not horror, but I was assigned it for book list. I finished a book called Crooked Hallelujah, which is going to be out next month or the month after, I believe. And it was very similar to that, except it took place in texas and oklahoma going back and forth on the border and dealing with different weather phenomena that the folks are dealing with there and it kind of spanned the generations which i thought was interesting every woman in that family who is a native american family each of them is dealing with different life issues at, at the same time as dealing with this these weather phenomena it reminded me a lot of grace falls when i was reading it and then the ending was just like what not to sell it even more, but a lot of the characters from Grace Falls do make an appearance. If not, the main characters from uh, Grace Falls are the main characters in Cataclysm. So the little girl from from the end, uh, an extraordinary, she she is like the main character, or at least one of the main characters in Cataclysm. So I definitely take all of them, and then I am working on a on a sequel to Grace Falls as well, which I'm, I you know, for those who who do read Grace Falls, I am tentatively calling it All Hallows Eve which makes a lot of sense <laughs> you know, when you get through the book. So uh, anyway, the, just a little tease there, but that's, that's, yeah, you know, everything should be connected. And uh, if people can pick up on the different connections, because there are connections to the night from the nightmares to Grace Falls, if they can pick up on that, like it, it'll be like a pretty cool Easter egg to be like, Oh, that's this. And then, and then go from there and be able to understand what happened in the two places. So the nightmares is set in the nineties and Grace Falls is set in the eighties. So what, what will be the time period for cataclysm? Um, well, it, it's, it's a coming of age story as well. It, it's a lot of things. Uh, and so it takes place everything from uh, the early eighties, kind of in flashbacks all the way through to 2013. Uh, so there's uh, a lot of events that happen uh, college age, uh, late nineties, and then, all the way through till 2013 when to basically connect the pieces together, the 13 and 2013, there's kind of a reason why that, that all comes together as well. That's really interesting. That's that book that I've just finished reading. That was very similar that it went through the different eras and it kind of bounced around. So that's, I'm excited about that. That sounds very cool. So why don't we talk a little bit about what's the most fun thing about writing in your genre 
And what's the hardest thing? I Susan, it sounds like since you jump around a little bit, you know, is there a difference between what you've written, what what's hard and what's what's easier? Not that any of it is easy, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Honestly, I kind of fell into the the dark and urban fantasy arena. I've always been a fan of the fantasy genre. I read a, a lot of it. And a lot of my, my early work that never went anywhere other than a file cabinet or a desk drawer was very much in the vein of high fantasy type of stories. Similar to what I was saying before is I wrote one, tried to force it to be a trilogy when it wasn't, uh, got very, very frustrated, and then just really had difficulty working on anything for quite a while. And then finally, one day I was, I was literally, and I think you, you may have heard this, we've heard other interviews that I've done. I was literally out raking leaves, trying to come up with an idea for um, NaNoWriMo a few years back. And I had nothing. And it was like 24 hours before it was supposed to start. And I was like, well, this is going to be another year where I don't do anything. And I started thinking about, you know, I like, you know, Irish mythology and folklore. And is there anything I could do with that? And, you know, if all these fairies that you, you hear about, you know, what would they do if they lived here? And I was like, well, you know, the you, the light fairy types would be, you know, the, the actors and the models and the beautiful people, because you always see them represented as, you know, they're tall and they're blonde and they're gorgeous and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, what would the, you know, the dark fairies do? And I was like, well, they'd be like the criminal underground. And I went, wait a minute, that's interesting. And I literally like went back into the house, wrote down like a page of notes mm. just about the idea of like dark fairies as like a crime family. And then went back out and raked because I figured my husband would stop speaking to me if I left him with all of the yard work. <laughs> but from there, I just, I wrote Shadow King having never read a dark urban fantasy book myself. And mm. people were like, what is it? And I'm like, I don't know. And then when I started doing a little more research, I was like, oh, there's this whole subgenre that I knew nothing about, and it looks like it kind of fits there. So I definitely backed into it, I would say. So from that sense, I think it was, it was easy to write, and I'm going to put easy in quotes, because like you said, nothing is ever easy when you write. Mm -hmm. But because I had no preconceived notion of what it was supposed to look like, it was just, okay, this is where the story is taking me, so this is where I'm going to go. And then it was like, oh, okay. Now what do I do? You know, kind of the old story of the dog that always chases the squirrel and finally catches it and doesn't know what to do with it. <laughs> it was definitely that moment. Like, okay, well, I caught it. Now what? So did you have a full draft at that point when you realized where you were in the process? Once I got the draft done and I'd done a few rounds of my own editing and I'd given it to a couple friends who, who I trust to, to either, they're not, they're not writers per se and they're not editors, but they're, they're honest. <laughs> So I know if they're like, yeah, I don't get it, um, then I have work to do. Sure. But I had given it to them. I had done some some edits based on their feedback, and then I stumbled on the the Launchpad competition. And I figured, well, what the heck? Let's throw it in there because they they had an offer. You know, if you paid like an extra, I don't know, twenty bucks at the time, you could get a page of feedback from the judges. And I was like, well, I'm never going to get feedback from the, this caliber of judges without a restraining order being slapped on me. Right. So I'll pay the 25 bucks and, you know, it's the risk they tell me it's terrible, but it's still feedback that I can do something with, hopefully. And at that point, they were like, well, what's the genre for the entry? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> so that's when I started doing a little investigating and started coming across um, like the the Midnight Texas books and um, the Hollow series from um, 
Kim Harrison and 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 those and I was like oh I'm like I love a I love these books because I started reading them and I was like I got even more excited about the genre because I was like oh I I, I kind of feel like I have a home now yeah hmm. and how did that so then after you were reading them how did that inform your revision process did you feel like oh no I'm I might be copying them I did not because I my premise from those particular series was was different enough that I didn't feel like there was a ton of overlap. All of the characters, even though they are witches or or pixies or fairies or whatever, or werewolves, there is a very relatable quality to all of them. So even though there is some, some dark elements to it, there's some borderline horror elements to it, I really felt like I could empathize with and connect with the characters, which I don't always, especially the the more into horror it gets, the more standoffish I get with the characters. So that piece of it, I wanted to hopefully try and make sure people could connect to my characters the same way and be like, yeah, they might be Faye and he might be a gangster, but I've felt that way when people have treated me this way or that way and and build that, that empathy for the characters, even though they're different. I think that's the key with all writing is to build that empathy between your reader and the character mm-hmm. and every reader will resonate differently with those characters. But when you tag on to those things that all people can experience fear and rejection and love and all of those, we really hit the nail on the head there. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what the differences are. Right. And I think having them in, in situations to an extent that are relatable, like the in the in the Hollow series, and for the life of me, I cannot remember the Pixie's name. <laughs> Jack Jax. Jake. I'm terrible. <laughs> He's very interesting because there the his race is very territorial and there's a lot of like humor in, you know, he and his family like defending their flower garden. But at the same time you're like I know people down the street who are like that about their yard. It's like, you know, they're yelling out the window, you know, get your dog off my lawn. Everybody's got something that they're weird about. Yeah. And it just, it made the, it made the characters more fun. And again, for me, more real. So that's, that's one thing I definitely try to emulate. Yeah, I like that. Details are always good, right? When we get the, you know, that funny little thing about the neighbor or that particular flavor of ice cream that the character likes and when it's put in there in an organic way Mm -hmm. just like well I wrote this character sheet about this character so I got to make sure I get all these things in there yes yeah I hate those character sheets (laughs) when I was younger it's like I must fill it out the whole way and now I'm like yeah whatever yeah the I, they never really resonated with me. And, and I know that a lot of writers really rely on them quite a bit. So I don't want to knock anybody who does. Yeah, no, absolutely. I don't want to diss anybody's process, but it's just not mine. For me, it's like, okay, it always ends up coming back to bite me because I've, I haven't recorded it all. And then I'll change some kind of detail and be like, oops, you messed that up. But for me, that's not how I feel the character. Like, that's not how I develop the character by writing these details. It's yep. those details come out of getting into that character's headspace. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's very much how it works for me. So how do you guys keep records of what you write? Is it, for me, it's kind of like all thrown together in Scrivener. And 
if I feel like I have to brainstorm more notes, I will. Or if I have to write something in a notebook, I will. But it's not very organized, which is funny because I'm a librarian. I'm supposed to organize things. But I outline quite a bit, but I also mess around with the outline a lot. So how about you guys? Wow. Yeah, if you could see right behind me right now, I have a uh, giant magnetic uh, black glass uh, dry erase board up on my uh, wall that basically is covered with uh, post-it notes that I kind of keep to things to remember to add or subtract or to uh, smooth out in my stories. So I, you know, and, and I have an Evernote that's like, you know, filled to the brim with a bunch of different notes. I have my Google Keep that's also there. And and how I've kind of like come to organize things on the fly is that Google Keep is for stuff that I need to know immediately. Google, or I'm sorry, Evernote is the is stuff for long term, if that makes sense. I, I clip articles and I put different things in there that I want to inspire me for later. And I do a lot of plotting in there as well. And then the the board behind me is actually for as I'm working, moving things around. I find that if I'm on too many dig- digital screens when I'm trying to move things around at like a Scrivener or something like that, I get lost. Like I, I it's almost like clicking is is harder for me than to turn around and look behind me on the board and just kind of keep track. And, and I think it's also a way to disconnect and move away from the digital space into something that's real and just kind of mess up or at least, uh, you know, turn off the brain a little bit from that world to to see things a little bit differently and help me organize that way. But to say that I'm organized is is by <laughs> no means a, a truth at all. I am completely organized chaos. Well, that's good. I'm glad I'm not the only one. (laughs) We talk about this at work because I have a coworker who's very, very organized. Like everything in her life is organized. She's like, it's so funny. You're like, you're so anal about some things and then other things. My process is very similar to that. Like I've got the outline, but then I've also got like the character notes, but I don't want to do a full on character sheet. Yeah. And sometimes the the characters really like to go back to to what you guys were saying before, sometimes the characters kind of take on their own life anyway in the middle of the story. And, you know, and I can speak specifically to that with um, Dylan Jacobs from from Grace Falls was uh, he's a a hair metal uh, fan back in the 80s and he really wants to start his own band called Marauder. And he mm-hmm. started off as like this one dimensional guy. And he is still kind of one dimensional throughout the entire uh, throughout the entire story. But like he speaks and lives his life entirely in music lyrics from bands like Motley Crue and Death Leopard and, and things like that. And I had so much fun writing him as I went. So much already. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was like, it was so much fun writing him because I was just like all over the map with the, the way he was and, and how he would suddenly quote uh, Neil Diamond and the other character would look at him like, are you kidding me? Like, you know, Neil Diamond. And he's like, I know more than just this one type of music. Okay. You know, and, and <laughs> I think that that whole thing kind of just spiraled out of just the first couple paragraphs that even if I wrote down his entire character journey, it wouldn't have made sense because as soon as that character got down onto onto the page and started being played with, he just took off into his own journey altogether. That definitely happens mm-hmm. for me too. Susan, are you more organized than we are? Oh God, no. I, I'm not even organized enough to be on Scrivener. And that's mostly because, well, before being forced to work at home 24-7, a lot of times my only time to write is at lunch during at work. But I don't have my Mac with me and I have to just work in Word and bring it home and 
combine it. But for, for organization, I'm very much, I'm not a plotter. I want to be. I try to be, and then I'm just like, nah, no, that's just not working for me. Similar to what Gino was saying, I have the, like the stuff I need to remember quickly, like an age or a birthday, if that's going to be relevant in the story, or a, a quick physical description. Um, I'll usually keep just a, an Excel sheet with just a list of characters and like a couple things I need to remember. And if there's something like important that's going to have to come up or should influence them, I might tag that in there. But beyond that, I, I don't have like a whole family history or anything like that. And then I'll usually have a separate Word document for kind of some some of the more in-depth world building. Like if, if it's in fantasy, it's like, is there something particular with religion or is there something particular about the city or the culture that will, will infuse more of the story as a whole? I'll keep track yeah. of it there. Um, so that way, is, as I'm editing and I'm like, yeah, that just doesn't sound right. I can go back and be like, oh, yeah, no, that's that's why. But that is about the level of my organization when I'm going through and self-editing or even when I'm writing. Actually, some of my drafts are pretty funny because I'll get stuck on something and you'll literally see it later in a draft where it'll be paragraph, a bunch of dialogue, and then in all capital letters in red, it'll say, this is terrible. What were you thinking? Go back and revise this. And then I'll just move on. <laughs> I do the same thing. <laughs> Like, I don't want to stop the flow, but at the same time, sometimes you're just like, what was I just doing? I'm like, I, no, no, no. But so I'm usually peppered with notes to myself about double check this or make sure they that this time matches with that time. And it, it kind of makes editing a nightmare. But again, it's it's the way my brain works. So I have to kind of go with the flow. Mm-hmm. I do that too. I write little like, check this or more description here. Yep. That kind of thing. Yep. This thing needs a stronger close. Yeah, I think also for me, it's, um, you know, I, I tend to really try hard to steer out of a cliche. Like anytime that I feel like I'm leaning back into a stereotype or a cliche or or something that has been done before so many times that I look at it and I say, is this worth it? Is, is this going to be something that, you know, other people are going to read and going to be like, ah, oh, that's lame. Everybody does that. And like, you know, and I... I, I cringe whenever I see a movie or, or read a book and they're like, well, the prophecy said to do this. And, and I'm like, ah, oh, but that's been done thousands of times before. So I, I, I really, really try hard to steer out of, out of anything that's like that, if at all possible. And, you know, and to make it as human as possible, too. And I think the human element really, the last couple of days, I've been completely um, off on a tangent with my own reading, I, I finally got a chance to, and, and this is like completely obscure, but there's an author named Del James, and he wrote uh, a short story called Without You. And it was uh, the basis for Guns N' Roses back in like the late uh, or mid 90s, uh, the basis for November Rain, Don't Cry and Estranged. Those three music videos uh, were all based on this short story. And I don't know how I got on it. And as I started reading through it, I'm like, wow, this is like a complete music rock star tragedy and what was great about it was that when you're reading it, you're like oh it's just so cliche it's the cliche rocker that's going through something and then all of a sudden the twist hits and then you're reading the rest and it becomes almost like a poem like it, it's so poetic in the way it, it played out and like you know there that is i think the weight that the author had to take was you know i, I the payoff is going to be when i read the last couple paragraphs it's going to make the cliche and everything leading up to that like make sense. 
but like again it's it's that it's that shift of like can i balance this out is is a reader going to be interested reading this up until i get to that point and i think that that's you know something that i weigh out a lot and i that's like my inner struggle the entire time but but it, it was a beautiful short story. And, and once you read it and you're like, you look back on those music videos for anybody who, who was a big fan, like I was back in the day, you know, they, they'll, they'll look at it and be like, wow, okay, I get it. I get what the context was that went into all that imagery. That's, that's really interesting. Cause I was thinking about this. I just finished a book that's an advanced reader and I, it, I think it comes out in October, but I'm a really big fan of the author. So I was kind of stalking the review websites trying to get the advanced reader copy. And so I read it right away. And there was a big twist at the midpoint that is similar to twists that I have seen in other work. But just the way it was done, the execution of it was just so brilliant. Mm -hmm. I did not see it coming at all. And it was just funny the way it hit me like in certain things, I've, I'm thinking about other times I've seen the twist happen and I don't want to give it away in case anybody mm. wants to read it. But one, I remember one, it was like executed absolutely beautifully. And one, it was just kind of like, oh, well, of course that's the twist. So it's it's just funny the way you set it up, the, you know, that you're very focused on setting it up. That's really important. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Twists, uh, to me, that is, you know, if you're going to talk about the hardest thing to write, I think it's to write a a shocking twist. I, I think you know humor. Some people struggle with that and everything back and forth. They can they can write the punchline or they or they you know or it's not brief enough or it doesn't have the quite the the right ring to it. But writing a twist that really comes out of nowhere, I think is is the hardest thing to write. And 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 for uh, for you who, who you've read obviously Grace Falls, I did. <laughs> I spent an enormous amount of time trying to come up with twists on just about every every story that I put in there. And some of them I think pay off really well. Others mm-hmm. that I think kind of fall, you know, they, they fall well. Like I don't embarrass myself by doing it, but <laughs> I definitely feel like, you know, it, it, um, it's, it survived what it needed to survive. Like, you know, it, it got you to, to the end of the story, but, but yeah, I think twists, like you just said, and, and if it, a twist is too cliche and it's not handled in, in, you know, with a certain way, it, it, it kind of falls flat. Yeah. And not every book can have a shocking twist. Like the author's previous book, it definitely was twisty and turny, but I kind of knew the ending was coming and I still loved it so much just because of the setup. So like you can't, you you can't always pull off the shocking twist. And then when like, I mean, M. Night Shyamalan is like, the <laughs> I was key just thinking the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> It's just funny. This, the things that we think about as writers that we're up all night worrying about the shocking twist. I, I definitely been there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Up. Some readers read for plot and some readers will get really angry with you if the plot doesn't work out exactly how they think it should. Whereas others will put those things aside if they really love the characters. So you, you can never have one kind of reading experience. Everybody has a different reading experience. So yeah. And typically fans, I mean, when you're talking about like the fanfic like that, or at least the way, the way, you know, for, I think famously, so the way people saw, for example, star Wars and over the last, you know, couple years and, and their anger with it. Some of it, I think maybe was legit, you know, like those people that they, they felt it could have gone a different way. But I think there was a certain amount of people that if they didn't see things the way exactly they wanted to see it, 
they were going to lose their minds regardless. Like it had to play out a certain way. And, and, and I think for, from an author's perspective, like I, I'm one of those people I'm like, you know, Hey, you know, respect the vision. It's, it's not your vision. Uh, either enjoy it or, 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 you know, or you can be critical of it, of course, you know, and, and, and that, that feedback definitely helps an author out, but to, to really rip into it, I think that like, like people have, I think has been a little, a little unfair, you know, I mean, yeah. there, there's fair enough fairness to go around with it. Like, and I, and I will be very honest with that. Like there were things that I wish had gone differently, but you know, yeah. ultimately that wasn't my vision. It wasn't my story to tell. And so I don't get as critical as other people do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're coming close to the end of our time here. So why don't each of you tell the readers where they can find your work and we'll wrap it up. Sure. Susan, you can lead off if you want. Okay, great. Thank you. Shadow King is uh, available on Amazon and other online outlets. Uh, Someday when your local indie bookstore is back open, you can always ask for it there and they can order it for you if it's not on the shelves. Devil Inside again hopefully out this year but we'll see how that goes uh but when it is released it will be uh the same on amazon or you can ask for it at your local stores or you can uh pre-order it if you're so inclined on the ink shares platform right now cool all right and uh you can always uh for me for ga finicaro you can always uh find my work uh, the nightmares and grace falls by going to uh, gafino.com uh, where I have links up to all the different websites but you can also find it on Amazon Barnes and Noble books a million I think just about every major retailer should have both books um, and I believe that if you are on Amazon that there is uh, you can also buy my uh, short story quibbles as well uh, directly for Kindle thank you both for being here this was great great conversation and we will see you all soon sounds good Wonderful. Thanks for having me. It was great. Yeah, thanks, guys. This is awesome. Thanks for listening to the Writing Block Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and will subscribe to hear our future episodes. We want to thank the Writing Block community for the continued support. You can find us on Twitter or Facebook or at writingblock.com. Remember to subscribe, share, and tell your friends. Thanks, everyone, and happy writing.